Why don't we talk about your 46-year-old man? Okay. This is a 46-year-old gentleman who I met in the emergency room after he was admitted by his orthopedic surgeon. He had previously undergone a fusion of his lumbar spine. And he had been having increasing back pain for approximately three to four weeks. And then it just became severe. He had uh, right leg pain and some weakness and some numbness in the upper part of the right leg. So he was admitted to the hospital and had an MRI of his lumbar spine, which showed an abnormal-looking LT vertebral body and a right paraspinous mass extending from L1 to L3. There was epidural extension from L1 to L3 with thecal sac compression, and there was also the degenerative changes that were known. And so I was asked to see him. I did a CT scan, chest, abdomen, and pelvis. There was no other evidence of lymphadenopathy in the chest, abdomen, and pelvis. The only finding was his paraspinous mass. There did not appear to be bone destruction on the CT. No B symptoms, fevers, chills, sweats. I put him on Decadron for pain control as well as narcotics and did a biopsy of his mass. I asked for a true cut biopsy. He ended up having a needle biopsy, which showed lymphocytes, a lymphocytic infiltration that was CD20 with a positive B-cell gene rearrangement, but no more histology beyond that. So what was the diagnosis? So he has a B-cell lymphoma. Given the fact that he had epidural disease, I knew he was going to need to be treated aggressively, and so I chose to treat him with RCHOP. He was CD20 positive. I didn't think that there was high likelihood that this was going to be a low-grade lymphoma, and even if it was, it was going to need to be treated relatively aggressively, so I proceeded to treat him. I did do a PET scan, which was done about a week and a half after he was put on the Decadron, and the PET scan showed the paraspinous, PET CT showed the mass, but it was not FDG avid. So, Bruce, what are your thoughts about this presentation? Well, this patient presents several problems. For one, the needle biopsy. Whenever we get a needle biopsy in a patient that's referred to us, we always go back and do a real biopsy. There was a paper from Tom Miller's group at the University of Arizona suggesting about a 60% mistaken diagnosis with needle biopsies. Either it was negative or it was lymphocytes, we don't know what they are, or it was lymphoma that we don't know what kind it is. So we always insist on the biopsy. And the fact that now the PET scan is negative is very quizzical because all these suspects for this, whether it be mantle cell, large cell, follicular, are all FDG avid. And I haven't seen a situation where just giving someone steroids reduces the FDG avidity of tumors. I expect it may happen. So now we're, you know, I agree that he needs our chop or something. The place where this may cause a problem in not having the diagnosis is A, the prognosis, and B, if it should come back, you're certainly going to have to re-biopsy it wherever it is to know how best to treat it. Because if it comes back as an in lymphoma, you may just sit on it for a while. But if it comes back as an aggressive lymphoma, then there are other options such as transplant that might need to be considered, whereas they might not be for other types of lymphomas. So this man was getting better, but he did also have another new problem. And that was, he said, he has recently developed symptoms after his third cycle of RCHOP that were reminiscent of those that he had prior to the diagnosis. Now, whether or not this is progressive disease, which I think is unlikely because everything else seems to be getting better, or whether this is tumor necrosis that is causing these symptoms is unknown, and we discussed the possibility of his getting an MRI to compare it with the previous MRI, which may help distinguish amongst these various possibilities. What kind of symptoms does he have? 
Right now he's off of his narcotic allergies. He takes some intermittently. He is complaining about having some back pain in the area where he initially presented with his back pain before it became progressively more severe and involved his leg. He still has residual numbness in his right upper leg, but this has improved from the time of his diagnosis. And so that has not progressed. So it's really some low back pain that for him worries him that it's the same process starting over again. Now, has he been re-imaged since he got the R-CHOP? I have not re-imaged him yet. And he's currently receiving therapy? He is currently receiving R-CHOP chemotherapy. He completed his third dose a week or so ago, tolerating it well. He has improved functionally. He's been tapered off his Decadron. His pain is much better. He does not have any B symptoms. There's no other lymphadenopathy. He does have fatigue from his chemotherapy, which is a little bit bothersome for him. He's a pretty type A kind of guy and wants to go out and work for eight hours a day, and he can't, and that's frustrating. And so we've had to grapple with issues of accepting his limitations, which has not been easy for him. What would have been involved in getting more tissue? How difficult would that have been? Oh, he would have had to have an open biopsy, probably by a neurosurgeon. I thought about rebiopsying him. I did not do it because I knew he needed to be treated aggressively. He was pretty anxious to get treated. Anything more you want to say about this case, Bruce? No, I'll be interested in seeing what his next MRI shows. I suspect it's going to be improved, but it does pose difficulties when you have to rely on things like PET scans to help you along and it's not there. you know. It's like the cell phone. You get to rely on something and you feel like someone has pulled a net out from under you and you can't use that. And we also talked about how to optimally treat him. And there really isn't any best answer. We talked about the possibility of four of the R-CHOP and radiation versus six of R-CHOP. And I certainly would leave that decision up to the treating physician. Anything new in terms of diffuse large cells from a research perspective, Bruce? Well, as far as clinical research goes, there are no new drugs out there far enough in the pipeline to be excited in large cell. The recent one that went to the FDA, Pixantrone, was unanimously voted down by the ODAC. There were some other drugs of interest. There was SGN40, an anti-CD40 monoclonal antibody, which failed the phase three trial. There aren't very many good drugs out there. You know, again, some of the other ones we talked about earlier have some activity, some of the antibodies and some of the small molecules, but it's a hard disease to do a clinical trial in because for a large cell patient who fails therapy, many of them are referred for stem cell transplant. And if they're not, then they tend to be either too sick or too bulky disease or too refractory to be a suitable candidate for a clinical trial. So it's been a very, very difficult area to test new drugs. We did a study with the drug Saha earlier, and it was a national trial, and it took us about 18 months to get 18 patients. So it's very difficult. So there's really not much out there, unfortunately. People are looking at lenalidomide-based combinations, Avastin-based combinations. There's a CHOP-R with or without Avastin study that's going on. But it's not as broad a landscape as it is with other forms of lymphoma. You don't hear too much about bevacizumab in lymphoma. What do we know about it? We know that as a single agent, it's pretty much inactive. 
There have been phase two data showing that it does have some toxicity, particularly bleeding. But the large trial is the only one that's really going on. We do know how it works, supposedly, and there is some evidence of angiogenesis perhaps being important in lymphomas. There is an increasing interest in and understanding of the microenvironment of the lymphomas. And in fact, some people think that may be as, if not more important than the tumor itself, particularly in follicular lymphomas, but perhaps also in large cell and mantle cell lymphoma. And certainly in Hodgkin's lymphoma, where you don't have a lot of malignant cells, but you sure have a lot of microenvironment there. There aren't a lot of studies there. There is another study that was presented at, I believe at ASH, it could have been the last ASCO, from Tom Witzig and his co-workers, which was CHOPR plus the antibody epituzumab, the anti-CD22. And this combination got a very high response rate of 92% with a lot of complete remissions, but these were patients selected to be CD22 positive, and we need a randomized trial to know whether this additional antibody, which means this additional thousands of dollars, is really of benefit to the standard RCHOP21 regimen. Maggie, what's it been like at a personal level to take care of this man? Well, at first he was very agitated. And his pain was so out of control that we just sort of had to get him to get to pain control. And then the Decadron made him crazy. And it really has been just trying to help him get his head around the fact that he's going to have some limitations in his life that he doesn't like. (laughs) And I think with time, he and I have established a reasonable relationship. Today was the calmest I've ever seen him, truly. (laughs) It must be you. (laughs) And he was actually pretty good. He felt like the last cycle went well. He's sort of getting into the bulk of his treatment and understanding what it's going to make him feel like, what his limitations are. And I think that's helping him sort of get a grip on what's happening. I think he also sort of sees the end line, the finish point too. And I think that's helpful for him because hopefully once he finishes, then with any luck, he won't ever see this again. You know, I think like most patients, they're angry, but they sort of come around and get to an acceptance point where they understand what they have to do and generally do it. Although he keeps asking me if he can stop after four doses, and I keep telling him no. Any comment, Bruce, about this man as a person? No, actually, when I saw him today, he was calm, he was reasonable, he asked appropriate questions. And, you know, why do we give six courses of treatment to patients? Because we don't know any better. In Hodgkin's, we're using PET scans to limit the number of courses at least in clinical trials, in large cell for patients with limited stage disease, we're also looking at the same thing. You know, you could probably get away with four cycles if you had a negative PET after two, but we had a negative PET before one, so we lack that information. It's not something I would encourage in practice. It's the subject of a clinical trial, but I think we are moving towards risk-adapted therapies, basing our treatments on FDG PET scans, but we are not to that point yet. And I want to stress that interim PET, particularly for large cell lymphoma, is not an accurate predictor of outcome. There have been many studies recently in the rituximab era that show that whether you're positive or negative and the interim PET, whether it be after two or three cycles, does not necessarily predict outcome. And there are no studies demonstrating benefit from altering therapy on the basis of that information. I guess there's one out there trying to look at that. There are studies out to look at that. The Memorial Group did a study looking at that and found an 87% false positive rate. And there was another group which also identified rituximab as the culprit because it causes inflammation 
necrosis of nodes. And whereas in the pre-rituximab era, the lines were fairly wide apart between positive and negative interim PETs. They have come closer and closer together with the addition of rituximab. And the PET results may also be regimen dependent. I just attended a meeting actually on interim PET scans in France. And even the nuclear medicine people are discouraging interim PET for large cell lymphoma, demonstrating in multiple studies that it is not as good as we thought it was at predicting the outcome. The negatives are negative, but the positives, there's a high likelihood of false positive results. I think the other problem with this whole issue of interim analysis is just from the patient's perspective, if all of his disease is internal, you know, there's something about knowing objectively that your tumor's getting better, that is beneficial for patients. And, you know, they all want that interim analysis, even though they know they're feeling better, they want that objective, yes, it's shrunk down by X amount information. And so I think as a practicing physician, you're, you know, you feel like you want to give them that sort of piece of information, because it helps them emotionally get on with things. But then you run the problem if it's positive. Well, I mean, you know, I have a chap with parmimetostinal B cell that I saw yesterday, and he wanted his PET-CT after two, and it showed a focus of what was clearly residual disease. It was small, from a huge mass to a small mass, but it still lit up a little bit. And he was as anxious as he could be until I said, look, I just went to this meeting, and the new data suggests that this does not necessarily mean gloom and doom. And we did agree that we would do a follow-up MRI on him to check out that L1, L2 area. And in point of fact, we'll see what his mass is doing on the lumbar MRI. So he will get information. The last thing I want to ask just both of you, and I'll start with you, Maggie, is what was this experience like for you today? Oh, well, I think it's really nice for the patients to be able to meet an expert and have somebody else look at their case. I enjoyed it. I always like learning what's new and out there and what's going on from the perspective of new research, new drugs, different paradigms in treatment. We tend to get stuck doing the things that we do. And then sometimes, you know, utilize new agents and new regimens in not the most appropriate way. And so it's always helpful to have somebody come along and help you kind of re- focus on the best science in the situation. So I enjoyed it. I thought it was very helpful for me. I always learn a lot. Bruce, any impressions? Any comments? Well, I actually had a lot of fun today. I think it's interesting to see how medicine is practiced outside of the academic centers where we have access to all these new drugs, where we know the data before the data are even published, and to see you know, how you do things out there and to get other perspectives on how to treat patients and to see how humanistic they are there in the community, how they really get to know their patients, not that we don't, but it was a very, I saw that Dr. Dorge had a very special relationship with these patients. They really liked her, they trusted her, and you know, it's just nice to see that sort of warm relationship between a doctor and a patient, and to know that we still care about patients out there. They're not just diseases, but they're patients, and I thoroughly enjoyed today.